Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. Hello, Alexa here, and my guest today is a specialist speech and language therapist who works for the NHS and the Joint Voice Clinic at Wexham Park Hospital, as well as being a member of the team at the Voice Care Centre in London. Her work involves assessing and guiding management of voice disorders, and she is a featured presenter for Vocal Health Education. Lydia Hart, my warmest welcomes to you. How are you? Hello. I'm really well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. This is my first ever podcast, so I'm very excited to chat with you today. That is exciting. That is exciting. Um, And we were really keen to speak to you, especially as an SLT. So I'm really grateful for your time. So can you give us the lowdown and an insight to what speech language therapy is and what that involves? Certainly. So I always sort of start by saying that speech and language therapy is actually a really broad field. I think depending on the sphere that you work in, you'll you'll probably come across a speech and language therapist. We kind of have like many guises. So, you know, when you study to be a speech therapist, you study everything from child development, psychology, medicine, end of life care, linguistics, phonetics. It's a really, really broad subject because we are the therapists that work with everything including speech problems language problems uh that doesn't even include voice and upper airway of course um and then also swallowing problems as well so speech therapists will work with babies right up until kind of elderly people nearing the world nearing the end of their lives with swallowing problems so it's a very very broad field and so you sort of study all of it and then you graduate after two three four years um and think okay what do i want to do with this um so i work in the field of voice and upper airway obviously and um through my degree i reached the point that i knew that that was what i wanted to get into sort of having dabbled in it through the course and having had a singing background as well i think when i started learning the voice stuff it really clicked for me i was like oh yeah this is getting me going um but it's not necessarily a field that you can get straight into on graduating as a speech therapist quite often you have to work a little bit more broadly first so i followed quite a common route in which is to start working with dysphagia with swallowing problems uh, in the hospital setting so i was on the hospital wards um sort of seeing patients with you know stroke frailty illnesses neurological diseases that kind of thing um but i was very lucky that the trust that i worked for which i still work for now friendly health um had a really sort of established voice department um and i sort of said i'd like to do voice one day please so i was kind of quite lucky uh that the opportunities came up for me to move into the field uh so speech therapists that work in voice i tend to nowadays say voice and upper airway because that's that's the field i work in i i don't just work with voice problems and as you know the larynx isn't just in you know isn't just there for producing voice it's involved in swallowing and airway protection and of course it's connected to our lungs and it's connected up to our mouth and nose so you can't really just isolate the voice generally speaking there's other stuff going on as well and so a lot of 
voice therapists such as myself we also work with other upper airway disorders that might be certain kinds of breathing disorders um chronic cough people who have irritation sensitivity in their throat they might have that feeling of a lump in their throat or <clears throat> you know that urge to clear their throat all the time we see um lots of different presentations that fall under that sort of general umbrella um but essentially you know we're a therapist so our our um role if you like is to work with patients and clients generally speaking who have had a diagnosis especially if they're coming through the nhs route it's a little bit differently if you're working with people sort of outside of the healthcare system if you like um but generally speaking they'll have seen an nose and throat doctor been given a diagnosis of a voice problem perhaps muscle tension dysphonia vocal cord nodules, vocal cord palsy, anything like that. Um, and then they come to us, the ENT sees them, scopes them, diagnoses them and says, right, off you go to the speech therapist, they'll sort you out. <laughs> and so we then have the person arrive at our door um, who has potentially had a bit of a rough journey getting to us especially when they're a singer and they've perhaps been struggling for a few years, not really getting the answers they want, et cetera. Um, and our role is to work with that person to essentially restore normal function. I sort of say that in inverted commas because what does normal mean? What does normal function mean? Um, but we're essentially sort of working with somebody that's got some degree of disorder problem that might be that their voice is hoarse for whatever reason and we're going to work with them as a therapist through different modalities to hopefully if it's a voice problem get their voice back to how they want it to be hmm. and was there something that when you look back was the deciding factor that you were like yes slt that's what i want to be yeah so my i'm very fortunate in that I landed on my career choice at the age of about 16 or 17 like I was really young um I think I'm very lucky in that I was sort of encouraged as a teenager to do volunteering work work experience get sort of a paid job once I was you know 17 18 doing care work I sort of worked with special needs children doing play schemes that kind of thing so that um sort of helped me to start thinking about working somehow in the care world um you know i come from a family of uh, my grandma was a midwife my sister's actually training to be a midwife my great aunties are all nurses so i come from a fairly kind of healthcare oriented family um so i knew i wanted to work with people and i wanted to help people i think i could have told you that probably when i was about five years old <laughs> uh, i'm a very kind of helping caring person in my nature and actually you will be hard stretched to find a speech therapist that isn't. We're a very kind of similar ilk. We're all kind of very caring people that just want to help other people, um, quite creative, quite good communicators, which again kind of comes with the field of being a speech and language therapist. Communication is what we do. So we're generally speaking pretty good at it. Um, but I was thinking, well, I don't think I want to be a doctor. I don't want to be a nurse. I don't want to be a teacher. So that sort of left the therapies world open to me. Um, and initially I was thinking about the kind of idealistic ideas of like art therapy and music therapy because they sounded terribly lovely and creative. So I was sort of 
researching that kind of thing um and then i sort of just went down a little rabbit hole of reading about physio and then occupational therapy and then speech and language therapy kind of popped up in my google search which was in a careers lesson in like year 11 i think a teacher just said go and google some careers that you're interested in (laughs) stick us in an it room for an hour um so i read about speech and language therapy and it just ticked all my boxes because i wanted something that was caring that was about looking after people and helping people but i wanted something that was going to challenge me academically as well and kind of involve science to some degree so i read about it and i was like bingo that's what i'm gonna do and you got it tick i got it tick exactly and then i started my degree first term first year we had our ear nose and throat module and i was like this is cool i love this um and what i really love is that um the lecturer that did that module he at the time was running the voice clinic at wexham park hospital and at the end of that term he said anyone that's enjoying this and wants to come along and observe the voice clinic come along so i did kind of christmas it would have been christmas time 2011 into 2012 little you know 19 year old me popped along to the the voice clinic and observed for a day sort of watching the ent surgeon watching the speech therapists thinking oh i'd love to do this one day and now you know i i run that clinic with mr costello so it's just you know i've been so fortunate in my path and the way everything's kind of come full circle for me and but i think that's because i was always quite clear about what i wanted so i've i've sort of those opportunities have come up for me i've been lucky yeah oh i love that um many coaches might be interested in kind of maybe training as an slt or going Mm. down that route and you've mentioned some of the subjects that you covered can you tell us a little bit more about what the training involves like what was the academic work like what was uh, the practical stuff a bit like yeah so uh, it's a a degree that you do either as a master's or an undergrad so i did it as an undergrad and uh, so it took me four years was the pathway that i did i studied at reading uni they had a master's degree there as well that was um two years long uh, but the content was all the same so it was either crammed into two years and the poor old masters were having a not that i would want to put anyone off doing the <laughs> speech therapy masters but it's a couple of years of really hard work um but you know at the end of it you all sort of come out with the same qualification and actually the job market is open to everyone and there isn't really an advantage as to which route you've taken um but like i said there's a really broad range of topics and what i do tend to say to sort of like you said, voice teachers, singing teachers who are interested in going down the speech therapy route is that actually most places where you might study, um, voice is going to be a very, very small percentage of what you actually cover in your course academically. Um, And whilst you might be able to choose to do sort of, um, you know, certain modules on it and maybe choose to do your dissertation research project project on it, which is what I did, you can't avoid doing sort of all of the other stuff as well a lot of the pediatric stuff as well um so it's sort of a toss-up between how much you're willing to actually learn lots of other stuff and have to kind of go on various placements doing everything other than voice uh, and the voice actually being quite a small part of it um knowing that obviously 
long game, of course, you're then going to be able to build up your skills in voice and kind of be a practicing voice therapist. Um, but I think it is worth bearing in mind that actually, if you know that all you want to do is voice and you're not interested really in in doing the other stuff then perhaps you might be better off looking at some of the more formal voice teacher training pathways as opposed you know such as the vocal health education pathways as opposed to speech therapy route um but equally i absolutely love my job and i loved my job before i worked in voice as well i think um as long as you're interested in working with people and working with communication um, and also supporting people's ability to eat and drink, that's like major. We don't really think about, gosh, what would it be like to not be able to swallow mm. or not be able to eat that food or not be able to drink without it going down into my lungs? So it's always really valuable, kind of mm. all of it. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to lie to you, Lydia. I know I'm very aware that I'm speaking to an SLT. So I've, I've got this awareness about how I'm speaking when I'm asking <laughs> you these questions. So I'm really interested to know about how training and working as an SLT has changed the way you listen and whether mm. that has eaten its way into your kind of day to day, your outside of the clinic life. So do you ever find yourself talking to a friend or to a stranger or to whoever in your family and going, oh? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I can't lie and I will say yes. <laughs> yes, I do. I mean, it's funny. I think I'm a speech language therapist, but you know, I'm not a, I'm not a trained voice actor or sort of speaking voice coach. So actually, I think some people that work in those fields have probably done more work on their own voice and than than other, you know, than me. I sometimes think, gosh, do people think I've got a really bad voice? <laughs> because I don't think so much about it. I think through the work I've done naturally, you learn to slow down, breathe, make sure that you're speaking in a sustainable way. And likewise, you know, notice how other people's voices sound. And I, I can't, I can't really switch that off. <laughs> and actually, the very fact that you noticed that I was actually, or said that I was listening to a podcast today, um, where quite um, a famous sports person was being interviewed, but his voice was really quite um noticeably strained shall we say and i couldn't keep listening <laughs> because i couldn't turn off that part of my voice thinking oh i wonder what his vocal cords look like oh i wonder if he's seen ent <laughs> so occasionally i do sort of pick up that kind of thing but i think the really important thing to say about that and actually, the longer I've worked in this field, and particularly the more time I spend working outside of the sort of standard NHS medical healthcare system that I started out in, um, I'm just realizing actually that we over pathologize so much, you know, it's if somebody's voice and that's that's how their voice sounds, and they're not bothered by it, and they're not struggling because of it then that's not a problem. It's not a disorder. It's not a something that needs to be investigated and diagnosed. So I think it's a real spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I guess I am, I do have a very uh, astute ear. Um, so I will pick up and hear things that other people probably wouldn't notice. But that doesn't mean I kind of go around with like a laser vision, <laughs> like looking out for the the undiagnosed voice problems 
in the public. And I don't really analyze. If somebody's got a normal voice, I've got nothing to say about your voice. You've just got a nice normal voice. Yeah. <laughs> so don't worry. Good. Whew, Relax. <laughs> you do some really great talks for vocal health education and the courses that they run. Um, and in one of them on the first aid certification, you talk mm. about the use of the GERBAS scale, the G-R-A-B-S scale. Yeah. And so can you talk to us a little bit about that and how you implement it and what it's for? Yep. Yep. So GERBAS is, I'd say, probably the most widely used um, perceptual voice analysis scale that is used universally, like I said, by sort of speech therapists, perhaps ENTs, and maybe some sort of um, trained, you know, I'm saying in, inverted commas, uh, sort of uh, singing teachers, vocal coaches that have sort of learned enough about it in order to use it consistently. Um, it's not a kind of black and white, hard and fast diagnostic tool. There's variability within it, but it is a really useful kind of quick parameter setting device for analyzing essentially how a voice sounds. So if I hear a, a voice that does sound a bit um, unusual or disordered in some way, then I probably will do a mental gerbass of it. Um, so yeah, there's five parameters, like you said. Um, G is the overall grade. So that's kind of your um, overarching uh, grade for the voice. Um, and that might be normal, mild, moderate, or severe. And that's zero, one, two, or three. So that's it's a zero to three scale. Uh, R is roughness. So that's listening for that kind of gravelly, croaky, irregular quality to the sound. B is the obvious one, breathiness. Asthenia is uh, the most tricky sometimes, the sort of most subtle of them, that's uh, asthenia or weakness. So sort of whether or not a, a voice has a sort of thin uh, quality that's sort of lacking in strength or um, breadth, if you like. And then S is strain. Um, so it's a quick way to just quickly analyze a voice, particularly if you're working with somebody who's got a voice disorder again i'm using um inverted commas there but a voice disorder a, a voice that isn't within normal limits um it's a nice way to actually initially assess how severe their voice sounds um and then also as a sort of tracking tool through therapy you know if you start out with a gerbus that might be two two zero one one and then at the end if you've got a gerbus that's zero 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 or you know one one zero 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 you know they've improved so it's also a way of um you know putting something on paper to actually show that that person's voice has improved as opposed to just stating stating it great and is there anything else um other than what gerbas states that you are looking for when you're assessing a, a speaking voice yeah so there's plenty so gerbas doesn't include pitch or volume so pitch is obviously whether or not somebody's speaking potentially at a you know what might seem an excessively low or high pitch it also wouldn't differentiate between whether or not somebody's speaking in their modal voice or sort of falsetto thin chord phonation which we do come across in certain forms of voice disorder um, it doesn't take into account volume so if somebody's speaking really quite loudly or very quietly the gerbas isn't going to capture that and then some other um 
qualities we sometimes come across something that we refer to as diplophonia um and that's where you hear sort of two tones in the voice you might hear sort of two fairly distinct pitches and you can sort of capture that under roughness but actually you're going to want to state probably that the voice was diplophonic so it, it doesn't capture anything mm. everything sorry so we need to make our own little mnemonic or something yeah it's worth it and i think gerbas um isn't the only way to analyze the voice and i think actually if you are just have got those rough parameters in mind they're really useful even if you don't use the full system or the full grading system are you thinking okay this voice doesn't sound quite right to me what is it about it that doesn't sound right is it that it sounds strained can i hear tension or pushing in the voice is it that it's breathy and i can hear that air escape is it that it's a bit weak or quiet is it that it's rough or croaky so even if you end up just thinking and and then and then you can think well is this really is that quite mild is it really extreme so even if you sort of think actually i think this person has a mildly breathy voice you don't have to do a full gerbas but at least the parameters of gerbas are helping to um point you in that direction mm. and i guess as singing teachers anyway we do look to the speaking voice to see what might then transfer over into their singing voice yeah um and when we have a client come into the room as singing teachers if we do notice that there is potentially something that we would consider consider not usual in somebody's mm. speaking voice what can we do as singing teachers to address that should we address that to start with yeah. um, for example if somebody is speaking consistently in a fry tone is that something that we can address and if so how could we address that or would you be expecting vocal coaches to refer on to mm. somebody like yourself mm. yeah that's a great question i'm sure like you said, lots of people are going to sort of be wondering the same thing, particularly singing teachers. Um, I think uh, as with everything, it it depends and it depends on a lot of things. I think uh, firstly, I'd say it depends on the person, the client and how significant their voice problems seem to be, both to you, the teacher and to them themselves. If they're complaining of uh, issues around their voice, let's say beyond singing, if they're complaining of issues with their speaking voice that are really quite troublesome for them, I think that's straight away a sign that actually suggesting a referral to ENT via the GP or privately and then on to speech therapy is probably a really good place to start because actually they're really bothered by their voice and so whilst you, you probably could do some things to help actually you don't necessarily want to delay that process of them potentially getting a, a diagnosis and, and um, appropriate treatment um if they're not too bothered by it uh, if they if it's something that you've noticed but they've actually not said oh i really struggle with my voice when i'm talking for a few hours it gets tired if they've not said anything like that and you're just thinking do you know what i think they're just a little bit creaky then in that situation, there's probably more scope for the singing teacher to do some work there. Um, and the other thing that I think it would depend on is sort of um, the the scope and skill set and confidence level of the singing teacher. And again, that will be really variable. Um, any sort of uh, 
extra training that you've done if you have gone through some of the sort of vocal health education pathways that's really what the VA, uh, vocal health first aid is there for it's there to give singing teachers just some basic ground level tools for working uh, with vocal health as an umbrella term um, so actually if it's something that you feel fairly confident that actually yes I think this is just vocal creak they're not reporting an issue I'm not really noticing any worrying red flags here, then perhaps, yeah, that is something you could do a bit of work on. Creek, for example, is a normal part of the human voice. You know, we all have creek and particularly for certain uh, dialects, certain cultures, certain genders, it's quite normal to dip down into creek or speak in more of a creaky tone. Um, particularly for females, we kind of tend to drop down into that, that creaky pitch. Um, and that's something that actually probably just a little bit of vocal work and maybe pointing out and working on it with the person is going to, you know, sort itself out. And if if that's happened, great. Um, I think if there's anything you're really unsure about or is sort of ringing any alarm bells for you, um, then perhaps it's worth, like I said before, sort of referring on to ENT through the GP. Um, so I think it depends on on how problematic it is for the for the client and how concerned you are and how confident you are but if in doubt i think is the as a as a blanket rule if in doubt if you're not sure particularly if there's any right red flags for that person if they are a smoker if they've got a family history of cancer um, if they've ever previously had any diagnoses on their larynx before that you should have a very kind of low threshold for suggesting a referral to mm. ENT because you want to rule out any sinister causes. Mm. Mm, great, thank you for that. And under that umbrella might come this idea of globus sensation or mm. feeling of a lump in the throat or anything that might be linked to, say, acid reflux or anything like that. So can you tell us or um, explain what globus is? Where does this lump mm. in the throat come from? And if a singer comes to us and says, hey, I feel like oh, there's a marble in my throat or mm. if it was like something's in the way, is there something that we can be offering them to help relieve that? Mm. Uh, interesting, you brought up the R word, reflux. Oh, is that, is that a bad word? <laughs> oh, is, is it a bad word? Uh, often, yes, I think, um, just to sort of touch on that, because it will have come up for so many people listening, reflux is, generally speaking, really overdiagnosed mm -hmm. um, in people with voice problems, be it singers or non-singers. Um, one of the most common kind of first line treatments is you go to your GP, you say you've got a voice problem and they say, oh, it might be reflux, take a PPI for three months. Um, and that has been really standard practice for decades now um, and is now frankly quite an old fashioned and inappropriate approach, but we're still, we're not really We've not moved past that yet. We, you know, it often takes um, what's done in practice a few years, if not decades, to catch up <laughs> with the reflux of what we know, uh, with the research, sorry, of what we know um, actually is appropriate. So that's a, a an ongoing thing, I think. Mm. Um, but certainly reflux can be a thing. I, I would say, generally speaking, if somebody has reflux, I like to think that if you know your own body, you will know if you're getting reflux. You'll be feeling symptoms of some kind, even if that's just a subtle slight burning in the throat, slight acidy taste, 
a slight kind of excess mucus that tends to happen after you've eaten or overnight. If you're waking up in the morning quite phlegmy and hoarse, that might be that you're getting some reflux overnight. So I always like to trust my patients. And whenever I have a conversation with, with a patient or a client about reflux, I will listen far more to what they tell me than what the doctor has said about whether or not they think they have reflux. Um, but reflux can be a cause of globus, yes. And so I think this is where the, the um, association has come from. Reflux can cause globus, reflux can cause voice problems, but that doesn't mean that all voice problems are caused by reflux. But we've sort of got stuck in this sort of one way thinking with it. Mm. Um, globus, as you said, is a sensation. It's, it's a description of a sensation. And that's the important thing with globus. You have a feeling of there being maybe a lump, like you said, maybe a marble in the throat. For some people, it's a very specific feeling of like a little fish bone or an apple pip. It's quite weird and wonderful and can be quite specific. Like people can point to it and say, yeah, feel it right there mm. or it might be more general whereas actually I just feel like I've got a lump in my throat or there's something stuck but I can't quite locate it or describe how it feels um but what's really important to understand about it is that it is purely a sensory phenomenon it might have arisen if it's arisen from reflux maybe it's secondary to some swelling inflammation in the throat but quite often it isn't. And so this is where actually it's really important to understand the complexity of the nerves in the throat and how the brain interprets that signal. Because you have a feeling of there being something stuck in your throat, there's nothing there, it all looks healthy and normal. So what we understand is that this is actually a disorder of sensation, the brain and the signal going up to the brain, something's going awry there. And so your brain is feeling something that isn't proportionate to what's actually going on in your throat, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's quite complex in that respect. And certainly where the field is sort of developing in our understanding of the sort of biopsychosocial factors affecting particularly the upper airway, the role of the brain, the role of the nervous system, the role of stress levels, anxiety, trauma. That's where actually in order to really understand what globus is and how to treat it, inverted commas, treat, I don't like that word, it sounds a bit too medical, how to help somebody with globus, how to heal from it. Um, actually, you have to take a very wide look at the whole person, the whole situation. And for a percentage of people, it will be a case that they have reflux, they start taking Gaviscon advance, they manage their diet, they stop eating late, and their globus goes away. Mm. But actually, for a lot of the, the, the people that I've worked with who complain of globus, certainly ones, you know, for example, coming through to voice care centre, it's often not quite that simple. And so the the sort of way that we help that person is it needs to be appropriately holistic. Um, and, so, you know, techniques that I might encourage, which will cross over very much with what singing teachers might do. Um, I tend to teach self-laryngeal massage, self-vocal massage, because if I'm suspecting that tension, muscle tension is a factor, um, then actually teaching somebody some techniques to actually get straight in there and kind of relax those muscles um, can be helpful. 
straw phonation sovt in the same way that we know it helps just kind of open everything out for the voice again if we think globus is perhaps a tension thing then that would apply but actually if i'm working with somebody who seems like quite a stressed out individual perhaps they've got some you know troubling factors at the time in their life that perhaps they're not really dealing with or you know they're struggling with some emotions that they're not really allowing themselves to feel you know there's a reason that when you know when you feel like you want to cry you feel a lump in your throat mm. and so when people come with a chronic feeling of a lump in their throat and actually chronically they're quite stressed and they're struggling to cope and they're not acknowledging that they're sort of swallowing those feelings down metaphorically and then the throat is where the physical symptom manifests mm. so we really see that kind of mind body connection mm. in this area mm. and it's uh, just good to point out we'll put it in the show notes as well that we have a, a cool podcast with stephen king where he talks about the biopsychosocial model so mm. check that out and i must say i've been swallowing all the way through that segment <laughs> <laughs> but that's really and that's really really interesting and really important to point out because actually what we do see with people who have throat symptoms um and through no fault of their own and i'm not saying this is a kind of a causative factor but they become very aware of their throat symptoms and they notice them more and they think about them more and then they get worse and then they think about them more and then they start to worry and then they get worse. So, you know, just by talking about it, you're kind of a bit more aware of your swallowing than normally. So you can see how it's quite easy that when somebody starts to get something that feels a little bit off in their throat, that then quite quickly becomes this sort of feedback loop of notice it it gets worse notice it um so yeah and so actually if i'm working with somebody who's seems to be it seems to be primarily that actually it is a biopsychosocial nervous system stress imbalance i'll do mindfulness mm. i'll do breathing i'll tell them to you know i'll talk to them about considering therapy um because actually probably for that person teaching them how to massage their throat isn't isn't really getting to that root cause mm. so you mentioned there about primary and secondary uh, disorders um and we know that voice disorders can fit into either of those categories so can you just explain a bit better than i just have introduced it how <laughs> that works with pathology and disorder Absolutely. So essentially, when we're talking about primary versus secondary, we're talking about what was the sort of first problem, to use that word, to crop up, and then what might have sort of resulted off of that, spawned off of it, if you like. Um, so I'll give a couple of examples, because I think that's probably the easiest way to explain it. Um, so in a specific voice sense, if we're talking about the larynx, if we're talking about sort of laryngeal pathologies and diagnoses, somebody might develop a vocal cord polyp, let's say. Um, and just to add at this point, vocal cord polyps can uh, develop for absolutely anyone at any point in their lives. Um, they might be sort of more associated with people that use their voices a lot, like singers, for example, or if a singer gets a vocal cord polyp, it's gonna have a much bigger impact on them than somebody who isn't a singer. Um, but actually anyone can develop a polyp and it's, it's one of those um, sort of just 
injuries of bad luck, if you like, just you happen to develop a bleed, not your fault, etc. But somebody might develop a vocal cord polyp and say they've got a little, you know, blood filled swelling on their vocal cord, particularly if it's right on that edge of the vocal cord when your vocal cords are coming together, it's going to get in the way. So you're going to have maybe a bit of a rough tone, a bit of breathiness. And so what might develop again as another voice disorder secondary to that is uh, muscle tension so there's this polyp that's uh, interfering with the vocal cords closing and vibrating well so uh, the person subconsciously often starts to work a bit harder squeeze a bit harder push a bit more because you're trying to essentially get those vocal cords closed and push through the polyp and so we might see somebody that has um a vocal cord polyp with secondary muscle tension dysphonia, we might say. Uh, but in a much broader sense as well, actually, um, somebody might develop a functional voice disorder secondary to a traumatic event. So actually the traumatic event happened, the person's nervous system kind of went into fight flight, maybe dissociation mode, didn't really recover. And then as part of that overall dysfunction let's say of the, the the nervous system generally maybe the voice goes maybe they lose their voice or they end up talking in a kind of strained or very creaky quiet voice and so in that situation we could say that that's a uh, a functional voice disorder secondary to um you know a stress event so um that's sort of a two examples of, of mm. what that means Great, thank you for that. Uh, and when you're in clinic at the moment, um, are you seeing a particular voice problem more than you see others? And, and if so, can you tell mm. us what, what that currently is? Yeah, so generally, sort of universally, we always see uh, the highest proportion of what we call functional voice disorders. So that's any form of voice. And again, we could say and upper airway disorder, where actually structurally everything's normal so we look down there aren't lesions on the vocal cords everything's healthy so they might end up with a diagnosis of muscle tension dysphonia for example so those sort of functional disorders um are more common than the sort of pathologies that we might see um in the current covid landscape i think we're still in the process i guess of collecting and bringing together the collective data on this um because i think when covid first hit we were all kind of really curious to to know what we might see in terms of is there an increase in anything post covid and i think certainly there are specific things that we are seeing but um it's quite hard to know if what you're seeing in your own clinic matches what's going on elsewhere in the country and in the world um covid does do some weird wonderful things to people's larynxes rare cases you know compared to the norm but we are seeing some unusual forms of sort of real swelling and edema of the larynx perhaps um sort of um particular growths in the larynx that kind of thing but just to stress that those are very rare you know generally speaking we're not seeing those in people who just had covid at home and were unweak, uh, unwell for a week or two that was often the sort of really poorly intubated ITU cases of COVID that we had earlier on in the pandemic. Um, so were they related to particular variants? I think so. I think 
there was a sort of in the original first couple of waves when I think we were working through kind of the alpha and the delta variants I think we saw more of that I'm not sure what's um coming out in the statistics about the Omicron variant just because obviously that's the most common and most recent variant what I think I'm certainly coming across anecdotally and uh, all of my colleagues, particularly at Voice Care Centre, we've had this conversation recently. People who have had COVID, particularly kind of Christmas onwards, the Omicron variant, they're struggling with a lot of mucus for a long time after. Oh, wow. There seems to be a really kind of mucusy, claggy, sorry to use some horrible words. I quite welcome like the word claggy. Welcome, welcome to the world of ear, nose and throat folks. <laughs> some patients sometimes start telling me about their mucus and they say, oh, I'm so sorry, this is really disgusting. I'm like, I love it. Tell me you more. Tell me. <laughs> Tell me more. But yeah, we are coming across um, people who were really struggling with just persistent mucus for weeks and weeks and weeks i've you know you know I, i've experienced that myself this year and so that's where i'm kind of talking about hydration steam neil med you know saline nasal rinses that kind of thing so which you gave a lovely demonstration of on your instagram yeah if any, if anyone's curious to know what a say saline nasal douche looks like check out my instagram <laughs> And I'm guessing like just this is just a, a question. Would you would you say that now that you're seeing lots of mucusy um, symptoms in in mm. COVID after Christmas, is that still people going acid reflux when it could be COVID related? That's a good question. I don't think so. But, uh, well, perhaps, but I think actually in most cases, it's following on from a week or two of feeling unwell so people know that actually it was the virus that caused it as opposed to wondering why am i so mucusy mm. um so yeah and, mm. and going back to what i said earlier if you're not getting any acid reflux symptoms other than a bit of mucus and you know you've been ill recently it's probably not reflux great <laughs> um and you have a very cool project uh, at the moment. You've written um, a book with your colleague, Stephen King. Can you tell us a bit about that and what when that might be coming out? When can we get it? That sort of thing. Definitely. Um, we posted about it on our Instagram, so I'm assuming that it's fine for me to just mention. I haven't checked with Stephen, but Stephen, I'm talking about our book. Um, so, yes, we did write a book. We were actually writing it. Uh, towards the back end of last year and uh, sort of the the complete kind of text is more or less done and it's actually what's special about this book is it's all going to be illustrated so at the moment it's with with our fabulous illustrator who's um putting it all together illustrating the whole book so we haven't yet got a finished project but or a pr finished product but we're we're very much in that kind of creative process still um but uh, the voice is uh, the book is about voice problems and it's really a supportive short book. It's not a big textbook. There's enough voice textbooks out there. And um, so we thought, why on earth would we write another one of those? Let's see if we can come up with something that's different. And um, it's going to be illustrated. It's not going to be long. It's going to be easy to understand anyone who picks it up. Um, can read it and understand it um, and we really want it to be a supportive almost like a, a guide if you like for navigating the complex world of having a voice problem be that 
for you know somebody themselves or for singing teachers speech therapists vocal coaches gps ent doctors you know it, it's sort of um a bit of a, a guide that's just taking you through what a journey to healing might look like for somebody who's got a voice problem and we've deliberately made it not very medical uh because um as i was saying earlier actually having medical diagnoses medical treatment is important in in some voice problems but but what we're really finding and i think what all people who work with voice know is that actually it's not about the diagnosis it's about the person um and often it's the person that gets left behind in that process of i've got a, a symptom so i go my doc to my doctor about the symptom and suddenly i'm just being passed from medical professional to medical professional being treated as a symptom and not as a person um and we know that actually really when it comes to helping somebody heal from a voice problem recover from a voice problem you've got to work with who they are as an individual and those biopsychosocial factors mm -hmm. um so we wanted to see if we could just produce something that reflects that and reflects that journey and somebody could pick up and read and get to the end and just feel like they've understand a little bit more and they've been heard and they've um got some tools if you like for knowing how to move forwards as opposed to feeling quite lost and confused um which is often the case particularly for singers with voice problems so watch this space yeah we'll keep our beady eyes out for that one for sure yeah. <laughs> um, so other than the, your book and obviously the mm. voice care center and vocal health vocal health education yeah. are there any other resources or bodies that you would encourage singing teachers to look at uh, in terms of learning more about maybe the spoken voice, what we can do mm. to bring attention to it or yeah, any resources that you kind of love and would recommend? That's a great question. Honestly, I think, you know, for myself, vocal health education was really quite unique in that it was bringing something to uh, the masses, let's say, because we really are trying to have a very wide reach. Um, it didn't really exist um so i think the resources there are fantastic and certainly anyone who's looking to learn more about what on earth does vocal health mean and what's my role in it and how do i talk about it a bit more because i think it's a scary area for people so that's i think certainly the place that i point people to um in terms of speech therapists any speech therapists listening um the lovely Tor Spence, who uh, is voice fit on Instagram, you may know her, she's actually put together a really great uh, online course for aimed at speech therapists working in, in voice, and that's got lots of lovely resources. Um, in terms of materials or, or resources I point people to, actually, I've very much learned my own voice skills, voice exercises, actually through training with my colleagues. So I was really lucky to be trained by a very experienced voice therapist who's now retired, but I was able to receive her wisdom before she <laughs> retired and, and then actually make it my own. And actually what I send out to my clients is actually videos that I've made demonstrating kind of my own take on voice exercises. And I have leaflets as well that I send out to people. So generally speaking, I used to sort of, for example, point people to YouTube videos before I made my own, but they never quite got did things how I wanted to. So I thought, well, 
actually why don't I just record my own and then I know that people are using what um what we're doing in our sessions together um mm. but I'm sure that uh actually probably you know people like your yourselves and other vocal coaches probably know more about resources that are out there for singing teachers because like I said I come from I come from a slightly different angle so it's yeah. sort of finding that that place in the middle where our worlds meet and it's mm. a it's a lovely place it is it is <laughs> um I've so enjoyed spending some time with you thank you so much um for taking thank your you. time out and, and giving us your wisdom so um where can people get hold of you and and get in touch if they have any questions or check you out Absolutely. So I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter. I'm Lydia Hart Voice uh, on both of those platforms. So you can just reach out to me on there, drop me a message, comment on my posts, watch me rinse my nose out with, with saline if you like. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Well, check that one out again. <laughs> Lydia, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Alexa. Cheers. So did that whet your appetite? Want more of where that came from? Then quench your thirst for knowledge by nerding out in our store where you can purchase a whole host of specialist educational videos for singing teachers, from building your business to fixing vocal faults. Or join our membership to get access to them all in your own geeky CPD library. Head over to www.basttraining.com forward slash store to get going. That's www.basttraining.com forward slash store.